If you love how Dan Rather unravels amazing true stories, you gotta check out Music's Greatest Mysteries. That podcast will really get you thinking. Hey there. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the podcast for music lovers. Full of thought-provoking interviews and conversations like you've never heard before with some of the biggest names in the biz. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from your favorite artists, from classic rock and country to timeless music everyone enjoys. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Stop the world and let me Tonight on The Big Interview, a country star who's returned to his roots the world of Marty Stewart. He's on a quest to save the boot-stomping, guitar-picking, old-fashioned American music. It wasn't about saving the past. I saw that the genre and the art form was kind of going over the edge, and I wanted to put my arms around it, shore up what was left of the culture, love it, embrace it, see that the old timers got home with love and dignity. There's a he spent his life with the legend, a child prodigy who hit the big time early. I had a job with Lester Flatt, and walking into the Grand Ole Opry with him was like walking into the Vatican with the Pope, and it gave me instant acceptance in the family of country music. I can live and breathe and come back from And after years of ups and downs, the shadows are friendly. Marty Stewart is back, doing it his way with his band, the fabulous Superlatives. This is the band, this is the moment I was born for. Superlatives, by including that in the title, some would say, well, that's a little arrogant. What say you? Well, the boys can back it up. <laughs> she knows that life. Five-time Grammy winner and a legend in his own right. How you doing? Marty Stewart. Tonight on The Big Interview. Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood has long been known as the home of the L.A. counterculture scene. Everything from rock and roll to heavy metal to punk could be heard any night at clubs all along the Sunset Strip. And that's usually the case here at the world-famous Roxy nightclub. But on this night, it was another brand of music packing the house. There's a girl trying to steal my heart and I'm tempted. Country Western star Marty Stewart was in town. Even though she could tear it apart, I'm tempted. For Stewart, what's old is new again. Well, it's a place where I'm not wanted. There's no price on my head. I can live and breathe and come back from the dead. He and his band, the Fabulous Superlatives, are cranking out vintage country and western. Marty Stewart was performing professionally before he was old enough to drive. Here's Marty on mandolin as a young teenager with legend Lester Flatt. 
back to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Marty Stewart. Welcome to the Marty Stewart Show. So Today, in between tours, Stewart has his own television show, which is a bit of a throwback to the variety shows he grew up with. His show features a special guest each episode. On this week, Winona Judd. Oh, sitting bull, sad look yonder. Here comes golden hair, thousand warriors in them. But after more than 40 years of performing, he still loves a live show. And this night, in front of this near-capacity crowd, he's proving that traditional roots of country music are still very much alive and well. Betty won't do it again, Betty won't do it again, get it! Marty, greetings. Hello, Dan Rather. Glad to see my you, my dear friend. friend. Thank you. Honored Let's to be start. with you. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. What are you up to these days? We're playing country music out in the world, and I'm having a big time. Big time, after all these years. Well, you wound up going on the road at age 13. Tell me how and why that happened. Well, actually, when I was 12, there was a, a, a gospel bluegrass band called the Sullivan Family Gospel Singers. Brother Enoch Sullivan, Sister Margie Sullivan, Brother Uncle Emmett Sullivan, Uncle Jerry Sullivan. They were a church house of Pentecostal bluegrass stars. And they let me go on the road with them when I was 12 to play the mandolin. And our, my summer that year was I got to leave home. I didn't have to cut grass anymore. And I found out uh, that I could wear my hair the way I wanted to, wear funny clothes. I met a lot of interesting people, could stay up late, and I got paid to hear applause. And we played Pentecostal churches, camp meeting revivals, and George Wallace campaign rallies. And so when that summer was over, I felt like the circus had dropped me off because I had to go back to school. And I was a pitiful excuse for a student. Did your parents have any reservation about letting you go on the road at age 12? I don't think they would have let me go on off with just anybody. But this was a, you know, this was a, a church environment, and so with, with reputable people. But it got a, the hill got steeper when uh, I got kicked out of school right after I went back to school in the ninth grade because I was reading a country music song roundup inside of my history book, and the history teacher came up and said, if you'd get your mind off of that garbage and get it onto history, you might make something out of yourself. Smart Alec said, well, I'd rather make history than learn about it, and said, dismissed. And I went and called a buddy of mine in Nashville who worked with Lester Flatt at the Grand Ole Opry, and he invited me up for the weekend. And Lester heard me play, and he offered me a job that weekend. When did you first play an instrument? You've been described as a child prodigy. you agree with that or not? Oh, I don't know. There's different levels of that. I hear kids today that were so far ahead of me. But I started my first band when I was nine. And I started playing and getting serious about it when I was eight or nine years old first instrument you played was? The guitar. And then uh, I fell in love with the mandolin when I was about 12. Now, did you have teachers, instructors for the first the guitar and then the mandolin? I learned. I had a record player you could slow down. You know, it would play 78, it would play 33, 45, and then it would go down to 16, and I could slow way down. <laughs> and I would watch people on television. I would listen to records and, uh, and, and learn to play by ear. Did you sing when you were first playing guitar? I tried just to play? avoid it at all costs. <laughs> I put off singing as long as I could, then one day I had to. But I was more interested in being a musician, just, just playing at the, at the time. All right, so you go on the road 
first in the summer, then full-time. What an education you got in the cities and towns of the nation. I couldn't wait. It, I've, I've said it before. It was almost like that scene in The Wizard of Oz when it went from color to black and white in the sweep of one frame. The minute I got to go to Nashville, I, I went up there on Labor Day weekend in 1972. I'm up, I rode a Greyhound bus from Philadelphia to Nashville. Got this into is Philadelphia, Nash Mississippi. Mississippi. <laughs> and so got into Nashville about 2.30 in the morning. My buddy was not there to pick me up. And I, and the Greyhound station at that time was right downtown. And I thought, well, maybe I'm at the wrong place. So I walked around the corner, and the Ryman Auditorium was there, which was the home of the Grand Ole Opry, the mother church of country music. And it almost drove me to my knees. It was so pretty to me, that building. So many things that I remembered from my childhood. And I knew that's where bluegrass music had really started. And I knew that that's where Johnny Cash had drugged his microphone stand across the foot lines and bid footlights had been dismissed that place was like Yankee Stadium to me and just standing in front of it at 3 2 30 and 3 in the morning I thought I want to be behind those doors and the next weekend I had a job with Lester Flatt and walking into the Grand Ole Opry with him was like walking into the Vatican with the Pope and it gave me instant acceptance and in, to the family of country music now you were what age when that happened? 13 and then what happened well I stayed with Lester until he passed away in 1979 and all of a sudden I was a kid without a job for the first time. Um, I worked with Doc and Merle Watson a little in that summer just to fill in the gaps and I walked, happened to go downtown Nashville one day and a buddy of mine was building this fancy black guitar with a gold eagle on it. And I said, who is that for? He said, Johnny Cash. I said, can I go with you when you deliver the guitar? And he said, sure. Danny Farrington. And I kept up with the progress of the guitar. And when the day came, uh, I went with him and met Mr. Cash. And when he first met me, he just kept shaking my hand. He said, where are you from? I said, Mississippi. He said, I thought so. He said, where have you been? I said, getting ready. He said, let's go. And about three weeks later, I got a call. And I didn't even have an audition. And I was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, got a rental car met the cast show in Des Moines, Iowa, and was hired on the spot. And so that's what happened after Lester. You started playing with Johnny Cash? Yeah. And how long did that last? I was with uh, the Johnny Cash show from 1979 until about 85 or 86. And then he helped me get a solo uh, recording deal with Columbia Records. And that's when I started my own band, my first band. And what was your first record you recorded on your own? There was a song called Arlene. It was kind of a rockabilly, yeah, snappy number. And I heard it for the first time on the radio out here. I was driving down the freeway in Los Angeles. And when it came on, I liked it and it, it excited me. But it didn't move me the way a Hank Williams song did. I thought, there's lots of work to do, son. <laughs> Ain't nobody gonna scare me away. I'm gonna hold my breath till I take her away. Arlene! Hey, are you coming in? You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Marty Stewart. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Marty Stewart. 
Marty Stewart turned his childhood talents into a big-time singing career, winning multiple Grammy and Country Music Awards. But after years of living famously, the mid-1990s saw Stewart's career suddenly plummet. His songs just weren't selling like they used to. I was on MCA Records for, for a, a long time. And all of a sudden, I went from being a radio star that was doing fine on the charts to all of a sudden there was just like a switch went off and everything changed. And I, all, I tried chasing and nothing seemed to work. So I had one record left on my recording contract with MCA Record and I, and I went deep and wrote a record called The Pilgrim. It was a concept record. There was a story that went through the record, but it embraced every avenue of country music, from mountain music to honky-tonk music, to country rock music, to the current sounds. And it really was a Sgt. Pepper's kind of record, or a red-headed stranger kind of record. And I had a lot of hopes for that record. But at the same time, I knew that it was broad, it was probably ahead of itself. And uh, I had a feeling that it would do okay critically, but commercially I had, I had my fears, and my worst fears were realized. The record company didn't quite know what to do with it, so they, they let the record go. And it devastated me. And after that happened, all of a sudden management went away. All of a sudden the publishing deal went away. I was, went from being you know, in the popularity parade to absolutely in the basement, dismissed. And I thought, well, this is, an, this is a strange feeling because I've been a part of country music since I was 13 years old. You can't throw me away and I can't throw you away. So we need to figure this thing out. So I took a, tried to take a year off. That was what year, by the way? About 1999, 2000 in there. And then I formed the fabulous Superlatives. And again, from that first rehearsal, I thought, okay, this is way bigger than chasing a hit song. We are musical missionaries or mercenaries or something like that. But this is, this is, this is the band, this is the moment I was born for right here. Superlatives, by including that in the title, make the band title, some would say, well, that's a little arrogant to say superlatives. What say you? Well, a couple of things. The boys can back it up. <laughs> so Stuart took his new band and decided to break from the traditional music scene. He made a hard right turn in his career, writing and singing roots music, the original songs of America. So I asked my booking agent, this is about 12 years ago, I said, if you would just book us as far back into the woods of America as you can. I don't want to know about charts. I don't want to know about demographics. I want to play ourselves out of the woods and bring American stories with us back to the light. And so the first people that would have us were the Lakota Indians upon Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. They adopted us and said, come on in. And Stuart did just that. He wrote ballads about the Lakota people, which became an album entitled Badlands. He and his band chronicled the plight of one of America's poorest Native American tribes, the Lakota Sioux of South Dakota. Stewart had first been introduced to the Sioux by his friend and mentor, Johnny Cash, years before. Stewart returned to the Pine Ridge Reservation to learn everything he could about the tribe, 
including enrolling in classes on native culture at a local college. But that was just the beginning of his break from mainstream music. I thought that I could build. He also went home to the Mississippi Delta to explore the roots of gospel music. And the result was the critically acclaimed album, Soul's Chapel. But Marty Stewart wanted more and he saw an opportunity to celebrate his roots, old-fashioned country music, a part of American culture he felt was being lost. I didn't feel like we had a place to drive our sword in the ground and go, this is what this, is what this band represents, until traditional country music reappeared. And all of a sudden, my old culture reappeared, the, the culture that invited me in when I was 13 years old. And it wasn't about saving the past. It was really about, I saw that the genre and the art form was kind of going over the edge, in my opinion. I wanted to put my arms around it, shore up what was left of the culture, love it, embrace it, see that the old timers got home with love and dignity. But the main thing was to weigh it in and inside of the pantheon of the arts, to put country music up there next to classical music, jazz and ballet and performing arts centers across America, as well as truck stops and, and festivals. And so that was the mission of the band. Started a television show that became a theater to just basically stage historical events. Uh, one of the shows that comes to mind is the last performance of Kitty Wells. It wasn't God who made honky-tonk angels. As you say, you got those kind of things that nobody seemed to be paying attention to, but I was given the license to do that on these kind of shows. So preserving history and furthering it, that's what I love doing. It'll come as no surprise to you to hear me say it. There are people who believe country music does not belong in that pantheon. Why does country music belong there? Good question. I, and I know that there are people there. We played the Metropolitan Museum of Art in uh, New York City recently. And I had people coming up to me after the show going, I've never heard that kind of music before. And they're welcome. Um, I think I read a statement recently by Hank Williams when he was asked, what is country music? He said, it is the dreams, hopes, plans, prayers, and experiences of the working people. I think the narrative, the overall narrative of country music is, you know, the common man's and woman's language. And I think that we have enough history behind us now. If you go back, you know, you can trace it all back to the roots of Ireland and Scotland, but if you consider the downbeat of commercial country music, 1927 when Mr. Peer recorded Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. Just want to start there and go forward. There's a lot of American power in there. There's a lot of roots power, and there's a lot of America's uh, identity that come in, inside of those songs and those characters, those folk heroes. And I and I believe that they do belong in, in that same pantheon because uh, there are just as many folk heroes in jazz, just as many folk heroes in ballet or classical music. I have to believe there are people watching and listening to this who do not know who the Carter family who that was, or for that matter, who Jimmy Rogers was. So let's have a, a brief 
the Carter family, right at the beginning of what we now call country music. And why were they important? Well, Gene Autry told me one time, he said, I didn't say I was the best cowboy singer. I didn't say I was the best cowboy actor, but I was about the first and the rest don't matter. <laughs> but the Carter family uh, was the first family of country music. They were simply the people that brought their songs and stories of Appalachia to the microphone. And their best known song is perhaps what? I would think, will the circle be unbroken? Oh, can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? And Jimmy Rogers was the country music's first superstar. Singing Brakeman. Singing Brakeman from Meridian, Mississippi. At a time when trains were big. Absolutely. And uh, he was considered the father of country music, the first person inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. And his best-known song, perhaps, Waiting for a Train? I would say Waiting for a Train. All around the water tanks, waiting for a train, a thousand miles. And uh, the thing that is powerful about Jimmy Rogers' presence in this very moment to me is if you go back to the subject matter, he was the guy in my opinion, that, that gave us the subject matter that country music is sometimes cliched for, but it's actually the empowering force. Trains, jail, hoboing, rambling, gambling, cheating, drinking, mama, church, redemption, sin. Jimmy Rogers was there first with all of those subject matters. And according to the newspaper this morning, those are relevant subjects. <laughs> You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Marty Stewart. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Marty Stewart. Marty Stewart is also considered the self-proclaimed archivist of country music, the historian of the craft. Because he's lived it, Stewart has collected thousands of artifacts, like this one. This is Johnny Cash's first black suit. And since the beginning of his career, he's also taken some of the most intimate portraits of the legends from Dolly Parton to Loretta Lynn oh, they tell me. to the very last photo ever taken of Johnny Cash. Oh, and very much like his mentor and friend, Stuart battled similar demons throughout his own career. Speaking of Johnny Cash, who it's well documented, he had his own demons to overcome. And it's common particularly I will go ahead and say it, with musicians and other performers who are on the road so much, uh, they fall into drink. Did you ever have a, a real alcohol oh, problem? Oh, well, well, absolutely, a party problem. And it, in the early 1970s, all, Lester Flatt wound up being a rock star, playing the Woodstock generation, I, I felt was looking for an, a, another place to go, and they found a place to go at Bluegrass Festival, so all of a sudden, we were at this old heritage act, but we were playing for lots of hippies, and we were on shows with lots of rock and roll stars, and 
that rock and roll lifestyle was just, it was just so common in that days. And being a young teenager and just like a sponge, I fell right into it and, you know, loved every bit of it and rocked for many, many years until one day I woke up and I went, Waylon wrote a song one time called The Hank Williams Syndrome is Dead. He was sending a message from down the line, boys, I have researched this and it will kill you. And after many years of just living that way, I, I, the time came and said, it's time to get sober and get clear and live Living that way. that way, was it whiskey and drugs or one or the other? Whiskey and pills went real good with country music. And so I, I loved every bit of that. And so that's the way I lived for a long time. What was the low point? The low point? Well, jail is never fun. Marty Stewart was arrested and jailed for driving under the influence in 2004. He spent two nights in jail. It became a life-changing moment. That came to a point in my life that I was really the old line sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so about 10 years ago, I raised my hand and went, help. And so it has been that way ever since, and I've loved every minute. That's the biggest regret I have in my life, is not living this way for my entire run. In the Pantheon, the American people's music Pantheon, Amazing Grace, or will the circle be unbroken? Well, that's a, Amazing Grace or the, will the circle be unbroken? Amazing Grace has a lot of power, has a lot of reach. I saw a wonderful program that Mr. Moyers did on PBS one time, I believe, that was centered around the song Amazing Grace. And it showed the global reach of the song from, you know, tribal chants, singing it, or a cotton field church in Alabama, prisoners singing. And I don't know that there will ever be another song that has the power, reach, range, and depth of Amazing Grace. It's everybody knows Amazing Grace. I think this is a part of America, and I'm asking whether you agree or disagree, that's pretty much unknown and unexplored, and that is how the basic music of African Americans flowed in to country music, as you said, the white man's blues, black gospel music, if we can call it that, very influential country music. On the other side of that, and I too have been surprised by the number of African-American people from the deep south, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, Lapping in Louisiana and Texas, would say, listen, we listen to Grand Ole Opry all the time. We listen to country music all the time. Do you know anybody who's explored that relationship? Because it seems a very strange one. It is a strange one. Um, Roger Middle wrote, wrote a song one time from his play Big River. Uh, it was about a black person and a white person. And the relationship being, I, the, the gist of the song was, I look up at, at the moon tonight and I see the same stars as you do, but we're worlds apart, we're worlds apart. I see the moon, same moon as you do, but we're worlds apart, worlds apart. And I think there was a razor thin line that existed, especially in the South, that we didn't even know about. And there were so many, uh, I go back to the, those guys that made those records in the 60s from Muscle Shoals. There was no color barrier there. They made great records in Muscle Shoals. Uh, there was no color. It was music. And you know, when I hear a train, I, hear, I still hear Jimmy Rogers, and I hear Howlin' Wolf in my mind singing Smokestack Lightning. I saw no color barrier at the Busy Bee Cafe when I was a little boy. Uh, and I think it's, it's a subject that needs to be explored deeper. 
The state of country music today, do you listen to much country music today? I listen to country music all the time. Well, what do you think? Well, I think we have to be mindful of our authenticity. But I've also said it's hard to go to a fella or a girl that's filling up stadiums and go, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> that's not how it, I've, I see it. Country music was designed to evolve with the ages, a reflection of our, our culture. Um, I don't think that we can ever hope that it will come back to the days of, you know, uh, rhinestone wearing hillbillies and driving Cadillacs and you know, living like Hank Williams. I don't think that's, that, that is a time that was precious. But um, my place, I, I found after exploring all these avenues, I love the fact that young country stars are on the cover of People magazine and they get to walk the red carpets with Hollywood celebrities. That's wonderful. That's great. We need that into things. But well, my role is I love the roots of country music. To me, they're the empowering force. They're the timeless. That's the bedrock. That's the rock of ages. Uh, it all comes and goes from there. It gives whatever's happening up here on the trendy end, you know, license to do what it needs to do. But I love that, that traditional country music side. And until further notice, that's where I shall stand. Well, as country music has changed, and you and I have been discussing some of the changes in country music, how has the country changed? What would you say, you're a historian, specializing in country music history, but intertwined with that is the history of the country. From the time you started playing on the road at age 12, what's the single biggest change in the country? The, the America that I stepped out onto the national stage on when I was a, a young man, the thing that I loved about America so much when I was beginning to travel, and I'm a natural born road dog, I love the road, but every town seemed to have its own identity. It had its own set of characters, its own set of stores, and whether it was the hardware store, or the mom and pop store, or whatever. And I loved that very much. I knew if I went to Danville, Virginia, there was a hardware store that I could get X. And I knew if I went to Billings, Montana, there was a pawn shop out there that I could you know, go to. And I just knew all of these, these places and these characters that gave these towns their identity. But now when I wake up, and I pull the curtain up on the bus, I see the same set of stores everywhere I go. I see the same, it's the same place everywhere I go, seemingly. It's the people, though, that, that give it still the identity. What some sociologists, I can't remember his name, call the homogenization of America. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's the term I've always believed, very true to our, our thing. And I think that's a reflection of, um, of country music sometimes. It's more homogenized. The thing I loved about the country music family that I was invited into as a young man is everybody, it was almost a badge of honor. And, 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 and it was insisted upon that you bring your culture to the table with you. That's why we had the, the songs of Merle Haggard. That's why we, Johnny Cash was so powerful. Bill Monroe brought his music from Kentucky. Mr. Wills brought from years back and you know, uh, uh, displayed his Texas music. But everybody was invited and encouraged to bring who they were, where they came from to the table. And that's what made it such a, a wonderful stew. And I think now sometimes we, you have to check that at the line and homogenize to get inside of the parade. As you were going through that history, you ticked off the names of all males. Let's talk about how hard it was for women to break into country music because there was a time it was extremely difficult for women to break in. Yes, you'd have a Kitty Wells, and yes, you'd have a Loretta Lynn, 
but they were the exceptions. Well, absolutely. Well, Kitty Wells was not uh, the undisputed queen for nothing, as they say. She was a queenly lady, uh, and she set the st integrity standard and just the professional standard so high. But as you say, it was a long time before the other ones. Patsy Cline had to kind of fight and claw her way through, but she did it on sheer vocal power and, and tenacity. Loretta, I would like to meet the person to keep Loretta away from the spotlight. She was so authentic, wonderful. Dolly, uh, just one by one, it was like it's the old Merle Travis song, if the left one don't get you, then the right one will. But those ladies, one by one, knocked the walls down. Connie Smith, just lady by lady, uh, it made it a lot easier for, for the way it is today. But you bet, it was a good old boys, it was a good old boys society. We'll have more of our country music history lesson with Marty Stewart, so stay here with us. Some folks have got love foolish, let it make a fool out of me. Angels rock me to sleep, angels rock me to sleep, in the cradle of love, in the cradle of love, bear me over the deep. Bear me over the deep To the heaven above To the heaven above When the Savior shall Marty Stewart is the, the unapologetic Renaissance man of country music. And his latest album reflects his roots. It's all about the relationship between gospel and country. Angels rock me to Angels rock me to sleep. Marty, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you, Mr. Rep. No, but I have a question. Marty Stewart, who are you? I mean, we know what you are, but who are you? Well, at the end of it all, I, if there was one line I would have to write, is, is he followed his heart regardless of the cost. And, um, I'm very proud of my Mississippi roots. I'm proud of the people that I come from. It's a wonderful thing to know where you come from. And I came from great people. John and Hilda Stewart's boy, Jennifer Stewart's brother, Connie Smith's husband, you know. Um, he stood for something. He stood for what he believed in. If you're going to remember one song that you wrote and performed, what would that song be? It's a song you've probably never heard. A, a song um, that the, I wrote for the Chuck Wagon Gang to sing, and it is called Someday. Someday we will go home. Someday we will go home. Someday, someday, we'll live with angels around God's great throne. Someday, someday our loved ones will see. Someday, someday, a welcome in heaven awaits for me. Someday, we'll have eternal peace, eternal rest. Someday, someday. I'll live alone with the, in the home of the blessed someday. I have to believe that song. Love that song. Thank you. Country music has always enjoyed a very unique relationship to me with gospel music. Like so many performers, country performers, probably like myself, started out in the church house. And uh, how many shows have you been to? Willie Nelson, you know, or if you went to wait, see a Johnny Cash show, or Merle, or... Uh, Porter Wagner, on and on, Hank Williams back in those days, Bill Monroe, just keep naming them. 
no matter how much the crowd was hooping and hollering, at some point, our, the star went, friends, we'd like to do you a gospel song. And the audience loves it, and they sing along, and I think it, it unlocks something that's a little different about the evening. And I've always enjoyed that relation. In Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs' band, gospel music was just understood. It was just simply a part of, of their repertoire. Same when I was in Johnny Cash's band, gospel music was absolutely a part of it. And that worked fine with me because that's the way I was raised too. When we put the superlatives together, the way we got to know each other as musicians, as singers, spiritually, professionally, was gospel songs. When we didn't even know what we were doing, we would sing gospel songs to learn harmony. And we all brought our own favorite gospel songs and then one day we started writing our own gospel songs. And when I started my television show, I made sure that there was a gospel song per show. And the next thing I know, we're stack we've stacked up a lot of songs that feel right to me, that feel like old friends. Have a record out, actually a double record called Saturday Night, Sunday Morning. Side record number one is unapologetic traditional country music. Side two, we take it down the gospel line. And so the Sunday morning concept, again, the whole, this whole project started with Mavis Staples singing on Cloudy Day with us nine years ago. And I released, Dan, I released two albums, several books, 156 episodes of a television show, and built a cabin in the woods of Mississippi while I was waiting for this album to come into focus. <laughs> but it started with Uncloudy Day and uh, made an entire gospel record. And then the country music side, the songs just kept coming. And I thought, this, this really works. This really works. It, it seems to be seamless. So the beauty of gospel music to me is, is the joy factor. I love the joy of gospel music, the, the, the hope in it. Well, that's the Sunday morning. The Saturday night part. Well, there's drinking in that. Saturday night is about regret if Sunday morning. <laughs> that's right. There's a song that I wrote on this record called Rough Around the Edges. And the first line is, I woke up this morning with miles of life behind me. My friends and family worried they don't know where to find me. Once again, I'll beg forgiveness for another lost night in my soul. Something bad's got a hold on me, and it just won't let me go. Rough around the edges, it's hard to face myself. The mirror in the morning shows a man who looks like death. Can't seem to find a way to steady up and gain control. Rough around the edges, the devil's reaching for my soul. I know that song. I live through it. That's Saturday night. Now cue the gospel. The gospel is, uh, there's a song on there, uh, well, I'm one day, one day closer than I've ever been before. One mile, one mile further down this tired and weary road. This old world is full of some heartache, so many troubles I have known. But like a pilgrim, I keep on moving because this world is not my home. It's a long walk. It's a long walk. It's a long walk to heaven, but I'm too close to turn around. By the way, how do you write? What's the process? How do you come up with these songs? They come out of nowhere. They're divine gifts. I, they're magic carpets that come out of nowhere. Hank Williams said it the best. Hoss, I don't write them. I just hang on to the pen and God sends them through. <laughs> well, do you write more easily of a morning or at night? There's no rhyme or reason to it. I've, I've had to pull off the interstate to write songs. I've had to get out of the shower and squirt shaving cream on on the mirror and write it with my no, finger. you're kidding. You're I did, kidding. I did, it was a hit too. And uh, sometimes it's, it's a formal writing appointment, sometimes it's early in the morning over a cup of coffee. They, they come from any direction. The idea is that, as you well know, keep your antenna up and have some, have some 
a, a pen and a paper close by. Love it. More with Marty on the mandolin, so stay here with us. something about a mandolin it has how many strings has my ignorance strings. of this instrument knows no bounds well I'll tell you what this mandolin uh, it's, it's actually a copy of a Gibson that was made by a fellow named Chris Warner up in old, uh, Pennsylvania and for many years it didn't have a scratch on it and I bought it for six hundred and fifty dollars when I went to work with Lester Flat. and when I was working with uh, John one night I looked and he just he had his pocket knife out on the stage and he wrote JRC and he scratched the big cross <laughs> And he turned it over on the back and put his name on the back. And after the show, I went, what did you do that for? He said, I didn't want you to forget the Lord. I said, <laughs> I could have remembered. And that set it off. And all of a sudden, I mean, I, all, people started signing my mandolin. I see Earl Scruggs, uh, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, my, Hank, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, my sister, Willie Nelson, uh, my mama. This is my favorite one, Doc Watson, you know, the blind guitarist. Right. Is it harder to play a mandolin than it is a guitar? It's a different world, and uh, it's, they're both kind of natural to me anymore. I don't think about it much, but um, I love the mandolin. At the end of the day, this is pro probably where I go and, and play to entertain myself. Yeah. Any requests? Ooh. What's your favorite fiddle tune? No, I like, um, is Fire in the Briar Patch? You do it. I bet we're the it. only people on Sunset Boulevard playing Fire in the Briar Patch today. What do you I think? I think that's probably a fair <laughs> bet. <laughs> that's great. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, sir. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. up another fantastic episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation come together. <laughs>